Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. My story of like the biggest body of water, um, when I was a kid, I had, the, I had the opportunity to go sailing. Um, and we went sailing somewhere down in the Caribbean, I can't even remember where, and went around the backside of an island that was sort of like, there were, it was not in the cluster of islands, it was like open water of the, of the Atlantic, basically. <laughs> um, and the swells got so big that we were literally going up and down and up and down. And it was, n- I, I mean, it was one of the most terrifying things I've ever experienced. Um, but... Uh, but it was also a really fun vacation. So anyway, uh, hey, we're going to start a new series this morning on the book of Jonah. Um, so water and sea um, will be relevant for us for the next few weeks. And I'm really excited to teach this book. I hope um, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning that you, um, if you have one, you'll bring one um, for the next few weeks because we will work our way verse by verse through this book. I forgot mine. And then I drove back home to get it. I, I don't know how the pastor forgets a Bible to come to church, but, uh, but I did. Um, and I want us to, as a church, continue to, to read and study um, this book together. So let's pray, and then um, we'll dig in. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Um, thank you for the different kinds of books within this holy book, um, for the stories for the songs, for the pieces of wisdom, um, for the history. Uh, we are grateful that you have spoken. And now we as your people pray for listening ears. Help us to hear from you today, from your word. Help me to speak your words and to bring clarity, to make them plain. And would you um, build up your church? Would you comfort? Would you convict? Would you challenge? Um, Would you um, inspire us from the story of Jonah? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, Jonah is sort of a timeless epic. And it really is an epic. It's like one of the finest pieces of ancient literature, whatever you believe about it, um, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. So um, artists and leaders and religious folks and non-religious folks have loved this book throughout the centuries. And I would say it's had something to say um, in any time period, but I'm convinced that for our moment, the book of Jonah actually is incredibly helpful. Um, and the reason that I say that is um, there's a, a, an author named Mark Sayers um, in, who starts the, the first of his trilogy of cultural commentaries. So he's commenting on our society and culture on Jonah. And the reason being is because we live in the age of a cultural storm. I mean, if you think about our city, where we're located, even here on this street, we're at the crossroads of a cultural collision, one that has the opportunity to become an incredibly breathtaking community, if there's unity. 
but on the other hand, has the potential to be an all-out turf war. And now listen, I'm, I'm not saying that things here in our neighborhoods are as bad as they were in the 90s when this was Murderapolis, all right? I'm not saying that, but I am saying that underneath the waters, the same potential for chaos and for collision still remains. And so what I want you to see is that this book speaks to us. And I think you'll find it maybe speaking to you over the course of the next few weeks. I hope you actually come to love the book of Jonah. Um, And here's why. Because Jonah's exaggerated expressions and swings of mood from this way to that way sort of feel a little bit like normal to us. (laughs) Jonah's um, association with religion, yet his spiritual and then even ethnic bigotry feels all too familiar to us. Jonah's journey into the depths and then his resulting display of the goodness and glory of God are exactly what we need. And so my prayer is that as we study a book from the Old Testament, you might see that the Old Testament isn't quite so old, at least not as you might think it is at first, and that we would really learn and hear from God as we read this book. So in honor of the prophet on the run, Um, I would like to tag this text and our sermon this morning, Running from God. Running from God. And as we study the Bible this morning, we'll look at the prophet who flees, the prophet who fears, and then the prophet who has fallen. Okay? That's where we're headed this morning. Um, Go ahead. Here we're going to start in verse 1 of the book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is a prophet on the run. And if you look at him, you'll see the ways in which he's running from God and running from the presence of the Lord. But before we get to sort of the heart of this chapter, let's orient ourselves a little bit for the book, okay? So we have this guy, Jonah. He's son of Amittai, right? And what that means is he is a prophet in the 8th century BC. If you look at 1 Kings, you get the record of Jonah there, he is a prophet under the rule of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II is this wicked king, but one whom God uses to take back territory. And in, in 1 Kings, it says, that, um, it says that Jonah is a prophet from Gath-Hefer, which oddly enough is about three miles away from Nazareth. I know somebody else who came from Nazareth. But Jonah grew up there in the northern part of Israel, where in during his lifetime and his life's work, God's people saw their land reduced drastically because foreign invaders from the north had come down and pressed them such that Israel was tiny as a northern kingdom. But during Jonah's days, Jonah speaks to the king and encourages him and says, God is with you, take back the land. And so the kingdom in that day, expands back, taking some of its territory, meaning that Jonah was from the town that was on the border battle, constantly in conflict 
from the northern powers, which will be important in a minute. So Jonah from Gath Heifer. But where's Nineveh? Where's Nineveh? I think maybe there's a map. Here's Nineveh, 550 miles up that way. If you'll notice up towards the north and around that side of the Fertile Crescent. And then Tarshish is 2,500 miles across the other edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Nineveh is the ancient Assyrian city. It is one of ruthless power. If you look at what the Bible says about it, it was a massive city with influence all over the region that one time, at one time threatened to take over and rule the entire area. Look at what Nahum, a prophet specifically to Nineveh, says about Nineveh. This is Nahum chapter 2, verse 8. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. He's speaking against Nineveh here. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end to the treasure in Nineveh or to the wealth of all precious things. And then he gets even darker. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. And all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? They were harsh people. Powerful people. Tarshish was different though. Tarshish, on the other hand, was this mysterious foreign place. The port from which all sorts of goods came from. There, it had wealth. It had um, exotic things. And it was the place that all of the region sourced their fine things from. Listen to what Ezekiel says. The ships of Tarshish traveled for you with your merchandise. So you were filled with and heavily laden in the heart of the seas. Your rowers brought you out into the high seas, and the east wind has wrecked you in the heart of the seas. Your riches, your wares, your merchandise, your mariners, your pilots, your caulkers, your dealers in merchandise, and all your men of war who are in you, with all the crew that is in your midst, sink into the heart of the seas on the day of your fall. Tarshish is an interesting place a great place of escape. So Jonah hears the word of the Lord and says, Nineveh? No, 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 I'm going there. And he goes, buys a ticket, and then makes his voyage to Tarshish. So we've seen Nineveh, we've seen Tarshish, but introduced even in this first few verses is the Lord. The Lord. And we'll get an idea of what he is like here in the next few verses. So Jonah leaves to flee the presence of the Lord. And then in verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. That word great is the Hebrew word gadol. And it is the word that is repeated constantly throughout this book. This book is a, a book of greatness. It is a book of um, extra. It is a book of might and power. And so great wind upon the sea. And then there was a mighty tempest, the same word, upon the sea, so that the ship threatened to, be to break up. And then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God. God had hurled the wind, but the sailors hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down 
into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Did you hear that? God says to Jonah, arise and go call out to Nineveh. And then the captain comes and says, arise, call out to your God. Jonah here, asleep in the belly of the fish, has resisted God's word. Listen to what Mark Sayer says. He says, by resisting God's word, his life-giving breath, Jonah falls into the sleep of death. The ship becomes a coffin bobbing in the depths. But who is the Lord? Well, apparently the Lord is not one who is easily escaped. The presence of the Lord, Jonah doesn't seem to get beyond. The power of the Lord, Jonah doesn't seem to get clear of. God in charge of the seas and the winds. God present even in Jonah's flight from the mission that he was called to. God is shown as this omnipresent, all-knowing, all-powerful God whom Jonah wants nothing to do with. What you see here is that you can flee from the call of the Lord, but you can't escape his presence. You can't escape his presence. You can run from the word of God. You can run from the will of God, but you will never escape the work of God in the world, no matter how far you go. Even for stubborn prophets, even for cynical people like me, you will never get beyond God's grace and presence. So we've seen how Jonah flees. Let's continue to see what he fears. Okay, keep reading. So this is verse seven. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, either with a bit of reluctance or with a bit of superiority, perhaps both, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord because he had told them, what is this you have done? See, the whole structure of this first chapter and, the, and all of the emphasis of the words and the way that it reads nails us right into this center point where you see contrasted both the form of religion that Jonah has with the reverence of true faith. Jonah is sitting here saying, I fear the Lord, and the sailors surely are cutting right through it, going, you fear the Lord and you're running away. You fear the Lord who's done all of this, and yet you fled his presence. How do you fear the Lord? These non-believing, or believing in other gods, sailors, cut right through and see Jonah for what he is. He's running from God. 
he sees that, they see that Jonah's fear is quite hollow. If you look closely at what's going on here, you see a couple different ways to live. All right, first you see Jonah saying, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. But his practice of fearing the Lord is a little bit sort of hollow. But he says, who I am as a Hebrew and what I've done as a prophet means something. I think you can see his presence in this passage. Religion. I am something for what I have done. I am someone for what I do. My association with this God, the Lord, means something for me and something for you. On the other hand, you see the sailors, not with a religious posture, but perhaps in the stream of relativism, saying, whichever God will seem to work will do. Let's cry out to him, to your God and to your God, perhaps some God will save us. Whoever seems to be relevant to the cause, well, let's serve that one. Do you see religion in your life? Do you see relativism in your life? Or do you see God's invitation to a reverent fear that brings about true faith? See, the reality is you can be just as lost in religion as you can relativism. You can run from God in both, in both streets. But the reverence of faith is something altogether different. The gospel is something altogether different. And if you think about this for a minute, this passage is saying something to us. And I think it's saying this is what running from the Lord looks like. Jonah is the example of it. How can you tell you're running from God? Well, look at Jonah, right? There's at least three pictures of him running from the Lord here in this passage. You see him physically, right? He goes on a ship, goes trying to go 2,500 miles away from his assignment. He pays money to go away. Running from God always looks like avoiding something physically. Maybe there's a person that you've been avoiding. Maybe there's a place that you've been avoiding. But running from God always has a physical dimension to it. We actually move away from the instructions of the Lord. You find yourself in a place that you're not supposed to be. You find yourself avoiding the things where you are to be. Running from God has a physical dimension to it. But running from God also has an emotional dimension to it. You see this in Jonah, right? He's running from God to the point where he's gone down, down, down into the belly of the ship. There'll be another belly coming up. But the belly of the ship, and he is emotionally shut down to the point where he sleeps, though there is a chaotic storm around him. He is numb to everything that is going on. He is shut down. And then you see, even at the end of the book, that he's not shut down, but he's shouting out there. He is so full of anger and rage that he cannot see what is going on around him. Sometimes your emotional life is clue to, that you are, to the fact that you are running from God. But then, of course, we have it spiritually as well. When we begin to say things like, I fear the Lord, but the sound of it rings untrue from the core of our being. We've seen how Jonah flees. We've seen his fear. And I think the question it prompts us is, are we running from God? 
is there a sense in which Jonah's flight and Jonah's fear cuts a little bit too close to home for us? Is there something that we avoid? Is there some place where we are numb? Is there some place where our words speak out more truth in our lives? Not only the fearful prophet, but we have the fallen prophet. And they said to him, what shall we do for you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has fallen upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore, they called out, same phrase, Jonah is to call out against Nineveh. The sailors ask him to call out to his God. And then finally, the sailors call out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not innocent blood upon on us, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly with a great fear. And they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah has fallen down, 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 now overboard into the sea. The sea in the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, is this chaotic darkness, a force that seems to almost oppose the goodness and light of the God of Israel. You see it even as the God of one of the peoples that surrounded Israel, the God of Canaan. And so here, probably, the sailors have already called out to this other god, the god of the seas, to no avail. And so they make a valiant effort. They row harder, which literally means they dug in their oars. And if you think about it, that's exactly what we do whenever we're confronted with the storm of life. Whenever God shows up and says, hey, you're running from me here, isn't our natural response to dig in and row harder? Don't we keep going thinking we can escape Further, how have you dug in your oars this morning, church? Going in a direction that you don't need to go. Mark Sayers says, the sailors, who no doubt would have been accustomed to rough passages of open water, see something dangerously different in this storm. They've now exhausted the idols of their respective cultures, and they call out to the Lord. They've stopped rowing, and Jonah has stopped running. And it's a moment of honesty where Jonah goes, yes, this is because uh, of me. And so he says, throw me overboard. I'm the one that God wants. This has nothing to do with you. God wants me. And in this moment, as mixed motive as he probably is, I think Jonah exemplifies something essential to the faith. That sometimes the only way to go forward in faith is to go into the deep. There is something about plunging into the depths of our own life, of our own souls, even into dark places that has a way of bringing us out the other side. 
We can flee the call of God, but we can't forsake his presence. And, and Jonah hasn't even left the presence of God as he drifts downward into the sea. And you see in this moment, as the waters cover over him, the inescapable presence of God, you see the power of God on display, and you see a larger-than-life prophet in his own fickleness sort of capturing our own hearts as well. Jonah's fled, and now he is fallen, which makes me wonder what hope is there. Like what hope is there for those who run from God? For us who run from God? Where does the gospel shine light into a situation like this? How can we turn the corner? If we do indeed go into the deep, what will happen? And I'm not going to spoiler alert the book. Like, I don't want to tell you what goes on. But I do think you see here a hope held out for those who run from God. I mean, when it comes to running from God, what the sailors put on display for you is that nothing, nothing that you have, none of your possessions, none of your work ethic, nothing that you could offer in terms of your religion, no sort of other angle on the perspectives of reality will do. You cannot throw anything into the sea that will appease its just wrath. But what do you see in Jonah? Up to the plank steps Jonah. Up to the plank steps Jonah as the reluctant sacrifice, going into the sea in order to calm its waters. And the response is amazing. These sailors who have tried the host of spiritualities now come to the point where they fear the greatness and power of the God of the, God of the Bible. They land in a spot of reverence because of the sacrifice of Jonah. But there is one prophet who is far greater than Jonah, friends. There is one prophet who did not write a book, but his story is far well known. There is one prophet who was not a reluctant sacrifice, but a willing one. I mean, you're going to help me preach today? There's a prophet who was not called to account for his own sins but was called to account for your sins and mine, right? There is a prophet who is not unfaithful to the call of God, who is not unfaithful to receive the word of God, but saw it through to the end. There is a prophet who knew that sailors like us had no hope of calming the sea and the storm of our sin. Jonah fled from God's call, but Jesus, the greater prophet, was faithful to it. Jonah tried to escape the presence of God, but Jesus lost the presence of God as he was sacrificed on the cross. Why? Well, don't you see, family, Jesus, the greater Jonah, sacrificed himself because as the faithful, as the faithful prophet fell, he gave us all we need to rise in reverent faith. As the faithful prophet Jesus went down to the depths, he gave us all that we need in order to rise up to see the greatness of God, even in a moment of sacrifice. Jesus, the greater Jonah, is how we stop running from God. 
But if you think about it, we need not just to stop running from God, we need to start running with God a little bit. And so um, let me close with a few ways that you can do that this week, okay? Um, If you read this passage, you see Jonah, as Mark Sayers says, finds himself physically and spiritually in a storm. And the storm we confront in our contemporary moment promises comfort, entertainment, and distraction. But if we look closely and see the underbelly, the chaos of the deep, the broken relationships, the addiction of substance and sensation, and a society racked with anxiety, he says the answer is not religion. The answer is not relativism. It is a reverent faith before a very great God. And if you think about it, walking with God, or running with God for that matter, involves listening to him. Jonah closed his ears and mind and ran the other way, but walking with God, of course, looks like hearing his call and obeying his voice. What if our definition of success so changed? I mean, success is what our society is fascinated with. How do we get more? How do we achieve greater? How do we live better? If success is our definition in those terms, what if it shifted to a more biblical one where success really was listening and then obeying the voice of the Lord? What if our our definition of success was that simple, if we just followed where God was leading? And I know listening to the voice of God sounds really mysterious, but if you sort of temper it with um, being honest in community, prayer to God, consulting God's word, even talking with good godly leaders, the voice of God becomes far more clear for us to follow. If we are to run with the Lord through this life, the race that he has set out for us, we need to learn to listen to God. And it does take shutting out some of the distractions. And that's one of the reasons why I want us to pray in this season. I want us to seek the Lord together such that we might hear him and then walk forward with him. Running with God through life involves listening for his call. But it also involves practicing his presence. Practicing his presence. There's a famous monk named Brother Lawrence who wrote actually very few things but incredibly powerful things about the presence of God. He was a monk who said that you could actually enjoy the presence of God while you wash dishes or while you do laundry or while you go to work in the morning or while you exercise. He was the kind of person that said there is nothing in life that is non-spiritual, but that you may walk through life and through every circumstance with the very presence of God with you as you align yourself with the purposes of God. And here's what he says about it. He says, the practice, which is alike the most holy, the most general, and the most needful in the spiritual life is the practice of the presence of God. It is the schooling of the soul to find its joy in his divine companionship. If you want to run through life with God, you have to cultivate a companionship with God. You have to begin to see the meaningful presence of God invade the mundane moments of your life. To see him along the road and along the path, not just at the mountaintops. And as we will see in the book of Jonas, to see him in the depths as well as the heights. 
the very presence of God with you always and his power as well. You can do that by becoming conscious of God in your life, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And the final way that I think you run with God through life is actually to go under the waters. And for some of you here this morning, that's what the Lord's inviting you to. There is a real way in which the storm that you face will only calm as you go into it with God. Sometimes the way forward is not just to ascend and to send and to ascend higher and higher and higher exponential, but the way forward in faith at times can be to fall down and to meet God in the depths because his presence is there as well as elsewhere. And sometimes in those dark and low places, the truth of his word and the glory of his character shines far brighter. And the, the character of then your soul gets forged and formed more into the likeness of Jesus as you go through the valleys. Is he not the shepherd that has promised to be with us even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Is he not the one who has said, I will lead you, I will guide you, and my mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. Perhaps the Lord's inviting you to go under the waters. Either way, I hope that we as a church grow in reverence. Not a kind of religious performance, but this awe at who God is at his presence and power, such that the very character and nature of God transforms not just our Sundays, but our everydays, not just our high points, but our low points, and everything in between. We pray towards that end. God, thank you for this book. It's such a gift to me. I am such a guilty prophet, just like Jonah. I am in need of your sacrifice. I'm in need of an atonement, not just to calm a storm, but to cleanse me of my sin. And so God, would you invite us to journey with Jonah and even for the people in this room, would they pick up this week a practice of your presence or perhaps a listening to your call or maybe an engagement and an acknowledgement of the storm that is before them? And would they not do it alone, knowing that your presence is with them and knowing that the very people in this church would love to be with them as well? Would you do work in our lives and our souls as we read Jonah? And as Jonah reads us, now move us, Lord, to respond to you and to your word with song, with offering, with communion. Thank you for all that you've done for us. And now by your spirit, bring forward our worship in response to your greatness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, I want to invite the worship team to go ahead and come on up and for the communion servers to begin preparing that and making